Welcome back. Over the next few episodes, we're going to talk about self-care in a way you may not have considered before. Today, we'll cover the six basics of self-care, which if you do nothing more than make changes in these areas, you should see great improvement in your daily functioning and feeling. Remember, you can reach out to me with questions, comments, or suggestions at katherinekentvelez.com. Now, I don't always tell people I'm a therapist, and this is a form of self-care. I do this because once someone finds out you're a therapist, they often want you to diagnose their mother or boyfriend, or they want to know if you have any tricks for telling when people are lying. And occasionally they ask if you've ever had a client become violent. And everyone seems to assume you spend your day listening to sob stories, and eventually they remark, unsolicited, that they could never work with the sadness and craziness you must see all day. Frankly, especially lately, I've seen more sadness and craziness outside the office than I ever have in. And though it may surprise many, my day is not spent drying tears or hearing bizarre tales, though that does often happen. Most of my time is spent in conversation and listening to people's lives, their stories, which include their pain and their joy and their dreams. And it is in the listening to their struggles and doing the work with them that I find all of my clients to be absolutely extraordinary human beings. The other part of being a therapist is the occasional ambush. My aunt and her friend Juanita came by one afternoon, ostensibly just for a quick visit, but what they were looking for was a quick diagnosis. Juanita launched into her litany of complaints. She said she didn't feel well most of the time. She didn't feel like getting out of bed. She didn't feel like knitting or gardening or going to church or to the movies with friends like she used to. She was having a lot of heartburn in the evening, and she wondered if she was having heart issues. Her relationship with her husband had become staid and boring, and she was easily irritated with him. She said she believed she needed to go to the doctor and get on a heart pill or an antidepressant. She thought a pill would really help. She wanted to know what I thought, and at least that's what she said. The reality is Juanita wasn't ready to hear what I thought. She just wanted someone to listen. And I did listen, and I referred her to her doctor, but I also referred her to a therapist. Juanita thought it was her heart or her husband when it was, at least in large part, her habits. Juanita may very well have had multiple medical issues and may have been depressed, perhaps needing an antidepressant, but clearly common sense and good self-care were problems for her as well. As we chatted, she talked about not sleeping well and not sleeping enough, not exercising, eating triple the amount of calories she needed in a day, drinking alcohol daily and sometimes to excess, sitting with negative thoughts much of the day and not knowing how to change that thinking. She didn't pray or meditate or read in any way to feed her mind or her soul. There was nothing of creativity in her life. Too many self-detrimental habits had creeped into Juanita's life, and the weeds of these habits were choking out the flowers of life. Her habits needed some serious pruning and replanting. There's an illusion folktale in a book I would encourage you to read called Two Old Women by Velma Wallace. 
Two old women are abandoned by their tribe during a famine as they have become a burden and too reliant on others to do for them. The two old women believe they can't do things, but as they learn to think and survival and self-care, they realize they can do things even though it might be uncomfortable. I won't give away the ending, but it's a thin book with an incredible tale of our interdependence and how even our most rigid belief systems can be changed. Part of what often happens is sometimes we're more willing or feel we're more able to take a pill, hoping it will magically cure our malaise and cycle of bad habits versus moving the body, learning to breathe properly, getting out into nature, feeding the brain and the body with healthy information and food, reducing or eliminating alcohol and pot, turning off the screens and turning to nature and relationships. Clients sometimes come into my office and hand me a list of medications they're taking and each of course comes with at least one if not multiple side effects. Much of the work I do with clients is examining lifestyles and belief systems. Wherever we find ourselves right now, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, is due to decisions we've made in our life as well as potentially years of programmed belief systems, maybe trauma, decisions others made that affected us, or brain health issues, but also a lifetime's worth of habits. Good habits that were not kept up or bad habits that were adopted. Often the bad habits are the result of attempts to self-soothe, to find comfort in some way. Maybe you've sustained a loss that is just too much to bear. Maybe you're fighting off feelings of self-loathing or shame. Maybe you became bored and lazy and your life just slipped away into a waste of intentions without actions. These habits that contribute or cause problems for our brains and bodies and relationships have to be changed. The terms self-care and habit are directly related. Over the next several weeks, we'll talk to experts in nutrition and yoga and breathing. You can make changes in your life and you can feel better than you feel at this moment. The thing that stops many people is fear of change. The anticipation of how difficult it might be or how much discomfort there might be in giving up the ice cream every night or making time for a long walk and talking with a spouse from whom you feel disconnected or relaxing at night without that martini or glass of wine. I am not telling you that this will be easy, but I believe that for most of you, it'll be easier than you think. Your brain is lying to you. It's telling you these things are much harder than they are, and as a result, you don't even start. Maybe you don't even want to, but your body and brain are making you more and more uncomfortable, and you know you need to. Self-care is not as sexy or freeing as it first sounds or as popular culture makes it look. It's not an excuse for indulgence. Self-care is weighted with much responsibility. Responsibility for ourselves and to others, including setting examples particularly for our children. They are watching and diminishing your own importance with poor self-care under the guise of love, or sacrifice, or at worst, martyrdom, is likely sending unintended messages to your children. 
It includes things like brushing your teeth, bathing regularly, keeping your finances in order, practicing your morality, and doing for others as well as for yourself. There are all kinds of things that fall under the heading of self-care, and it is not new. It goes back more than 2,000 years ago when Socrates addressed care of self and to know thyself. In studying American history, we see the idea that self-care has been weaponized and used as one of the reasons black people or women were denied voting rights. They were considered unable to care for themselves and thus not allowed to vote. So self-care is or can be a political and revolutionary act as well as a great responsibility. It is our responsibility to take care of ourselves to the extent possible. And in life, sometimes our ability to do that fluctuates. It waxes and wanes with life circumstances. And we all have times when we need help. So how do I sit across from a mother of four who is working two jobs and barely making it and talk about self-care? The discussion of self-care contains all the things we will outline, including asking for help and seeking out resources and a willingness to lean on others in our interdependence and, when we are stronger, to allow others to lean on us. The better we care for us, the stronger we are. There are those who feel we shouldn't have to or cannot ask for help. We may feel shame in our situation and feel we deserve this hard part of life and it's up to us to struggle through it. Or we might minimize our situation and feel it would be a weakness to ask for help. If you are feeling you need help but are not asking for it, I encourage you to consider why you're not asking. What negative messages might you be sending to yourself? No one can help me. I've tried and no one will help me. I created this mess and it's up to me to deal with it. No one cares about me. I don't have it bad. I should be grateful. Do any of those sound familiar? One of the most important aspects of self-care is if we're doing it well, we see a de decrease in anxiety and depression and an increase in our mood and feelings of wellness and health. Whatever helps you take care of yourself so that you can set healthy boundaries and reach your potential as a human being, including asking for help. I'll start with some of the basics, mainly because when I look at clients I've seen over the years of being a therapist, I would guess 60%, maybe 70% of the people who come to see me have issues of self-care that are either causing or contributing to their symptoms. When people are depressed and struggling with mood and or thought disorders, one of the first things to suffer is basic self-care. Let's look at these six basics. Number one, sleep. Sleep is the single most important factor in good health. The National Sleep Foundation recommends seven to nine hours of sleep per night for adults and eight to 11 for children and teens. The risks of routinely getting less than that, according to the Center for Disease Control, about 30, 33% of us do not get the recommended amount of sleep. But the risk is it can result in increased incidence of stroke, heart problems, and reduced ability to think. The brain rids itself of toxins at night 
including those associated with things like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Michael Thorpe, who's a professor of clinical neurology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, says the lymphatic system, which is the central nervous system of the brain and spinal cord, disposes of toxins building up daily in our system, causing damage and disease. While we sleep, that system is able to work ridding our brains of the daily buildup of toxins. When we don't sleep, then the system isn't able to rid our brains of those toxins and they stay in our system and build up. Number two is nutrition. It's a very big piece of self-care. And I don't know how many, particularly women I've come across will say, oh, I forgot to eat today. Or I just grabbed something really quick because I don't have time. This is not a healthy behavior. And let's be clear, I'm not talking about the person who does it once in a great while. That happens to all of us. But I'm talking about if you do this more than occasionally, if it's a pattern in your life. One of the things I think many of us have missed out on is generational cooking. For instance, some of us were never taught to cook and we were never really taught about proper nutrition or we haven't updated our knowledge about nutrition. Yes, we might have had some classes in school, but the application and practice of nutrition and finances and feeding ourselves have not necessarily been passed down from generations. Like my grandparents knew how to preserve food and grew their own fruits and vegetables. My mother's generation was introduced to fast food and microwaves, which created a situation where we didn't have to think about nutrition or even preparing or preserving the food. We drove up, handed over some cash, and that was it. That may be why in part about 60% of Americans are obese. It may be why our children's generation is the first generation that's not expected to have a longer life expectancy than their parents. Also in America, we get mixed messages. There is cheap and filling fast food with little nutrition combined with a culture that's spending billions every year on diet and weight loss products. Self-care is not easy. For instance, if you're not eating well, you need to educate yourself on nutrition. I will uh, talk with nutritionists and a diabetes expert on future podcasts. Check with your doctor and a nutritionist about how and what you eat. Number three, exercise and movement. And I'm not talking about marathon running. I'm talking about 30 minutes a day, exercising obviously under the supervision of a physician. As long as your doctor has released you to exercise and you have no underlying medical issues, do something that causes you to breathe a little heavy causes your lungs to fill to capacity, getting maximum oxygen to your body and brain, something that makes you sweat a little. Again, different things work for different people. If you're not motivated to do this alone, then exercise with someone who will help hold you accountable and someone you enjoy talking with or being with. The alone time and exercise can be a form of self-care and listening to podcasts like this one can Feed your mind or your soul while doing this and take your mind off the, the drudgery of exercise if that's how you feel about it. We know things that sit and are not used tend to rust and fall apart. The body is meant to move and be active. My grandfather, a carpenter, added an addition to his home when he was in his early 80s. I remember him up on that roof hammering in shingles. Frankie, who was a campus monitor at Ponderosa High School where I worked for a bit, used to say, Getting older does not have to mean getting weaker. Why can't it mean getting stronger? 
number four, prayer and meditation. A time to still our minds and think about things, including giving thanks for our lives and our loves, expressing our gratitude is an important self-care skill. In addition to allowing ourselves time to think about things before we actually do them, to use our critical thinking skills, which I find don't get used as often as they should. And the importance of critical thinking is we need that time to analyze and evaluate something in order to form a judgment about it. Something I employed many years ago while studying religion and psychology and determining what worked for me was taking time each morning for more structured prayer and meditation. And during the day, I find myself in prayer in a variety of different ways. However, each morning, I spend an amount of time saying formal prayers and talking to God. And then I stop talking, and I spend an equal amount of time listening to God, or trying to. It is in the listening that I find my body and brain and spirit preparing to meet the day and make the most of it with a happy heart and a grateful attitude. Now, some days the best I can do is smile and ask God to get me through, and on those days, that's good enough. But we're talking about developing habit, and the more I've done it, the more I find I'm able to meet difficult, dreaded tasks with a happy heart and a smile. Number five, get to the doctor for an overall health check if you have not done so in the last few months. Not necessarily for medication, but for a thorough physical exam and discussing sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Your doctor can be a wonderful referral source. We complain that medicine is based on curing disease and not preventing it, but strides have been made in those areas over the last decade or two. And it is your responsibility to use your doctor in prevention as well as treatment. And lastly, number six, ask for help. I know I covered this, but it's worth repeating. A couple of other issues about self-care that I think we might want to look at is if you've ever said to yourself, you know, I'm beat. I'm, I've done enough. I'm going to binge watch some show for the rest of the weekend. I know I'm in the minority here, and as I've said, take what works for you and leave the rest, but I am not a big proponent of binge-watching television. I liken it to anything that is not necessarily particularly good for us in large quantities, but can be enjoyable and relaxing in small amounts, everything in moderation, right? So if I handed you a bag of Butterfingers or a bag of Ruffles potato chips, you might have one or two or a handful and say, that was delicious, great. But if you eat the entire bag, you're not going to feel good about yourself, even if it tasted good going down. And that is the responsibility of self-care. So I'd recommend if you're fatigued and tired and need a rest, watch one or two episodes and then get up and move and do something. I think it's like the bag of Butterfingers. We look forward to it and the first or second one, delicious going down, but the rest are just binging, and we don't really enjoy them as much as we enjoyed the first few. Also, I would like you to think about shifting your thinking slightly around the responsibility piece of self-care. When I use the word responsibility here, it's meant to be not only the weight of having to do those things and learning about things if you haven't to date, but the empowerment of doing it for yourself. You can choose to look at self-care as yet another thing that you have to add to your list of things to do. But I'd encourage you to look at it as the things that we do that will allow us to do for others and continue to meet our full potential. 
We all have time for this. We must make time for it. If we're going to be our best selves for ourselves and our loved ones and our neighbors and the world. Make it a wonderful week and I look forward to talking to you soon.